and then our um, scripture reading for this morning. It's from Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, and I'm going to put this microphone down while I arrange my props. Is that okay? Good morning. Uh, I had prepared a great message for you all, but I think the the music actually preached a better sermon than I am capable of preaching. Um, I want to say thank you to, to Kevin and to Craig, not only for your artistry, but for your thoughtfulness in preparing our uh, songs each week. Somebody said, uh, people don't sing the sermon in the shower, by which they meant uh, all that I'm about to say to you will eventually leave your mind, but uh, the songs that we sang this morning hopefully will be echoing in your ears for the the coming days and weeks uh, as we approach Christmas. So, on with the forgettable part of the (laughs) morning together. (laughs) One thing that is often invisible to us as readers of scripture is the passage of time between its narrated events. So unless we have a working timeline of the events of salvation history in our minds, which I confess I don't always have handy, we don't grasp how much time passes between, for example, a prophetic utterance and the fulfillment of that prophecy. Anybody sympathize? Uh, We can read scripture and say with confidence that God does indeed keep his promises, but what's sometimes hidden from us is the long wait between promise and fulfillment. In today's gospel text, Mark skips over the birth narratives that we find in Matthew and Luke and moves straight to the story of Jesus' baptism and the beginning of his public ministry. Uh, Mark moves quickly throughout his gospel from event to event. So those of you who are Bible scholars in the room know this already. Uh, in fact, the, word, the, the Greek word, uh, I'm going to try this, it's been a while since my uh, Greek class, eutheos, which gets translated immediately or straight away, appears 40 times in Mark's gospel. If Mark were a tour guide, he'd be the kind that grabs our hand and rushes us from stop to stop. Perhaps you know someone who is like a Mark. Mark's Jesus is in a hurry. However, Mark also situates his narrative of Jesus' life on a timeline that stretches back centuries. So maybe you caught it in our scripture reading this morning. While it's true that no one stays anywhere for long in Mark's gospel, the character's frenetic pace is set against the backdrop of a story that has been developing for multiple generations. 
Right from the start, Mark compares the good news that will be announced by Jesus with the good news announced by the Jewish prophet Isaiah some 600 years earlier. The quotation on the lips of John the baptizer that Nanette read a moment ago has resonances with Micah, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 3 and even further back to the events described in Exodus 23. This morning we'll focus on the passage that Mark names in Isaiah. This comes from Isaiah 40. That prophetic poem begins this way. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Now that is in the KJV. I originally had the KJV down as the scripture reading and I decided not to torture Nanette with that. But here we go. I'm reading the KJV because it reveals something that other English translations hide, which is that the command to comfort is delivered to the plural ye and not the singular thou. Everybody with me? Okay. English majors unite. God speaks to a group of people, not just to an individual. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. What a verse for our current day, huh? For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye, there it is again, the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Here's what else remains hidden when we read Isaiah 40. A century and a half passes between the first verse of Isaiah 40 and the final verse of the preceding chapter, Isaiah 39. Isaiah 39 is enacted sometime around or after 700 BCE. Chapter 40, according to scholarly consensus, is voiced around 540 BCE. So a lot happens in the space between those two verses. Their proximity on the page might lead us to believe that we're dealing with an immediately, like we find in Mark. But in reality, an entire lifetime passes between these two verses. And of all the events in that 160-year time frame, perhaps the most important is the the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 587 BCE. Babylon destroys the city, deports its people, Israel is taken into captivity, and the breath between the end of Isaiah 39 and the beginning of Isaiah 40, we get texts like Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept, along with God's command to his people in Jeremiah chapter 29, to seek the welfare of the city to which I have called you into exile. And we can also insert in this small space between Isaiah 39 and 40 the words of Lamentations 1 and this repeated refrain. The writer of Lamentations personifies Israel as a woman and says, She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has no one to comfort her. Her downfall was appalling with none to comfort her. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. They heard how I was groaning with no one to comfort me. So the call, comfort ye, in Isaiah 40 verse 1, takes on new meaning with disaster and dislocation and delay echoing in the background. Now there's some extremely good news embedded here in these centuries-long delays, which is that God acts even when we don't see evidence of his action. 
Our New Testament text assigned for today from 2 Peter drives home the point that God's good news is good news not just because of what he accomplishes, but because of when he accomplishes it. 2 Peter chapter 3, pick it up in verse 8, but do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. God acts even when we don't see evidence of God's action. The fact that we so often don't see his action is one reason we pray as Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer that God's kingdom would come. That prayer reminds us to attend to the ways that God's kingdom is already arriving in our midst. Or as we prayed in our prayer response for today, God, sharpen our awareness of your presence, especially in places that we, won't, we wouldn't think to look naturally. I like the way Frederick Buechner, theologian and writer, says it. Those who believe in God can never, in a way, be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in the stable, they can never be sure where he will appear. If God were present in this least auspicious of all events, this birth of a peasant's child, then there's no place or time so lowly and earthbound, but that holiness can be present there too. Now you might be asking yourselves, how can we look in places that it wouldn't occur to us to look? To which I would answer, exactly. <laughs> we need the help of the same Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary. We can't do it on our own. But as someone who often overlooks things that are right in front of my face, and Hillary's with the kids this morning, otherwise she would be shouting amen, I'm not very observant. I sympathize with that question. But God acts even when we don't see evidence of his action. That is true in the sense that we often aren't reliable witnesses. Our vision is limited. Even Paul says, now we see in a glass dimly. Only later will we see face to face. But that statement that we miss so much of God's activity is true in another sense that has nothing to do with how observant we are in goodness. Another reason we don't see evidence of God's action is that we're only alive for a short time. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> in other words, God acted before we came along and will continue acting after our deaths. This truth was delivered to me in a memorable way, a few years ago, when Hillary and I accompanied Matt and Annette to a pastor's conference, the host-pastor couple concluded that conference with a session in which they shared a series of a dozen or so statements about the church, the worldwide church. Each statement began with the words, I dream. Matt and Annette, do you remember this? They're nodding their heads, so I'm not making this up. Two of these statements captured my imagination stuck with me. The first was this. I dream that maybe we're still the early church. Now this one astounds me because I've grown up in a tradition in which I regularly hear the words, should the Lord tarry in his return? Are you familiar with that phrase? Somebody please nod your head so I don't feel so alone. Thank you. <clears throat> and these words, should the Lord tarry in his return, are often tacked onto the announcement of any plans made beyond about 12 months in advance. For example, we'll plan to hold this conference again in 2025, should the Lord tarry in his return. And I'm aware of how peculiar and even humorous this phrase might sound in some of our ears, 
But I want to be very clear about the fact that we are indeed eagerly awaiting the Lord's return. And to illustrate, I brought an icon that shows the earliest disciples as Christ ascends. I, I, I brought, if, you, if you can't get a good look, maybe after the service you can come. This is the same, uh, different version, but the same, same scene. The ascension of the Lord. I don't know if you can make it out, but the disciples look worried. (laughs) And I can resonate with the collective uncertainty shown on their expressions and in their gestures. I can situate myself among them, (laughs) slack-jawed, perhaps quibbling with the still-ascending Christ about his suspect ordering of things. If you're going to ascend, wouldn't it make sense to send the helper first? All the while, Mary, Jesus' mother, stands in the center, facing the viewer. Her calm demeanor contrasts with the tumult surrounding her, and through her composure, Mary embodies the presence of the otherwise invisible Holy Spirit. In so doing, she serves as an example for us, the church, tasked as we are to bear Christ to a world every bit as tumultuous as the one she stands both apart from and among in this depiction. All the while, the Spirit overshadows us, working intimately among us, but independently of our contrivances to form Christ in us. And this bit of good news is also present in Isaiah chapter 40. A little further down, we read, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Again, the voice commands a group to prepare the way. But then, and, and this is, again, so easy to miss, the speaker switches to passive voice. Valleys shall be filled. Mountains shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight. These statements are constructed without a clear subject, which calls into question whether Isaiah's hearers are the ones immediately and ultimately responsible for doing the work of this highway project through the wilderness. I love the way this prophecy takes shape because it helps us to avoid the mistake of thinking we are the ones who, by our own efforts, make possible God's entry into the world. He's coming no matter what. And our role is to notice it, to call attention to it. God is the one building the highway. He's also the one traveling the highway. All we're supposed to do is follow him and shout about it, really. Of course, we're not always faithful in our following of him or in our shouting about it. We're sometimes preoccupied, other times reluctant. As we wait, we're tempted to think that God does not care about my situation. God does not notice me. God is not powerful enough to act. Sometimes we're skeptical that God will fulfill all of his promises. We're often impatient. And Isaiah embodies this mixture between skepticism and impatience in the following verse, which kicks off an exchange between Isaiah and God. We read, Picking it up in verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, and the I here is most likely the voice of the prophet himself, what shall I cry? Now one potential reading of the following lines is a kind of aside to the audience. 
or perhaps if this were written as a script for a play, these lines would be the italicized part that reveals Isaiah's inner monologue. All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are glass, grass. In other words, when Isaiah asks in verse 6, what shall I cry? He could be taken to mean, what's the point? It's been 160 years. Then some scholars posit a change of speaker in verse 8. And this voice might be the same one that commands Isaiah to cry in verse 6. And this voice acknowledges the validity of what makes Isaiah skeptical and impatient. God says, the grass does indeed wither, the flower fades. In other words, I grant your point. <laughs> but then the voice asserts the truth that the word of our God will stand forever. And again, this theme emerges of God's faithful action over and against our finitude and our failure. And again, the miracle is right there in plain sight. God invites us in our finitude and failure to participate in his infinite, unfailing work of redemption. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann drives home this point when he says, the offer of comfort in Isaiah 40 is not based on the suitability or qualification of the people, but upon the resolve of God. Thanks be to God. I mentioned earlier that there were two statements at that pastor's conference that stuck with me. The first, I dreamed that maybe we're still the early church. The second was this. I dream of a church where my grandchildren's grandchildren learn to love and follow Jesus. Isn't that great? This statement captures my imagination for the same reason the first one does, which is that it contains a hopeful acknowledgement, not only that God's work will outlast us, but also that God's work through us will outlast us. One of the ways he'll continue his work is through our family members, both biological and spiritual. My maternal grandfather turned 90 a couple of months ago. He has lived his entire life on the plot of land that he has farmed all of his adult life. Some of my fondest memories happened right there, which seems impossibly small compared to how big it seemed when I was a kid from that view. <clears throat> he and my grandmother will celebrate 70 years of marriage here in a couple of months, which is hard to fathom. In June of 2017, he wrote a letter to his 10 grandchildren it included some proverbial wisdom, some reflections on his life, and some of his hopes for the future. It also included a bit of poetry, and I saved a stanza of one of his poems in which he writes, Although the activities of life today have changed very much from the past, I still know that when the day is done, I've created something that will last. He has spent his entire life tending the same land, he truly has built something that has stood the test of time, several things, in fact, from the house that my mom and her two, her two siblings were raised in, and that he and my grandmother still live in, to barns on the property, to a thriving farming operation, but I suspect that what he's referring to when he says something that will last doesn't correspond neatly to something he built or any specific business success he has achieved over the years although those have stood the test of time in their own way. 
You know, when I think about my grandfather creating something that will last, I think about his relationships. His decision to trust God over the long haul has launched futures that he likely couldn't have imagined. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And this photo serves as one visual reminder of the truth of that verse. As we draw toward a close this morning, I'd like to return to our New Testament text from 2 Peter. In light of the coming fulfillment of God's promise, which seems delayed, but is also as immediate as our next breath, Peter asks a question. What sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and destroyed and the elements will amount with fire? What a question that is. But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. There are a couple of paradoxical exhortations tucked into these verses that I'd like to call our attention to. According to Peter, we are to be people who both wait for and hasten the coming of the Lord. Odd, right? How are we to understand the relationship between these seemingly contradictory actions? Aren't they opposites? How is it possible to do both at the same time? How can we be the sort of people who wait a lifetime for a promise to be fulfilled while also living lives defined by the kind of immediate urgent and decisive action that Jesus displays in Mark's gospel. Now, in light of everything we've looked at this morning, I want to suggest to you that if these two actions, wait for and hasten, sound like mutually exclusive postures, it's only because they are radically countercultural postures. Hastening has no time for waiting. They're countercultural, but they're not impossible to do at the same time. In fact, doing both at the same time is a distinctly Christian way of being. Because the word of the Lord stands forever, waiting for his coming is precisely how we hasten it. Waiting for every valley to be lifted up and every mountain and hill to be made low and the uneven ground to become level and the rough places to become a plain is precisely how we hasten the revelation of God's glory to all flesh, as Isaiah says. Waiting is an activity, inactivity born of hopelessness. To wait is to trust God's activity, to hasten the coming of the one who is our only hope. On this second Sunday of Advent, the theme is peace. Waiting can be peaceful, but it's often full of strife and longing. Think again of Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down, we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our harps, for there our captors asked for us songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing a song of the Lord in a foreign land? And if you're there today, you're not alone. Isaiah concludes in chapter 40 with these remarks, and I'd invite you to stand as we prepare to approach the table, and we'll read these words of hope together. 
By the way, of, of all the prayers that we pray together in our weekly prayer service, uh, I find it interesting that it is the prayer for peace in which we pray that God would hasten the coming of his kingdom. Isaiah 40 concludes with these words. Would you read them with me? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Amen.